Friends, uh, it is uh, an honor for me and a joy always to seek to open the Word of God, even on an online uh, virtual service as we are gathered here. Uh, I was thinking about the fact that this time, almost exactly this time last year, it was my joy to be with you for, an, again, an online service, which was for Good Friday. And I believe I was trying to uh, preach on John 18 and 19. I'm sure you, if some of you will remember that, I do. Uh, and, uh, and I never for a moment ever thought that a year later I would be uh, preaching uh, virtually uh, in the way that we are. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it's okay. And the Lord lives and reigns. And one of the passages which uh, in 2 Chronicles 20, there's a prayer of Jehoshaphat caught in the middle of an extraordinary thing. Three nations poised to destroy Judah. He gathers the people together and he prays a very humble prayer. He says, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And I found that to be a very helpful prayer. Just like Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Our prayers, which I've been praying a lot, and I encourage you to, to think so as well. Just as another thing, I don't know, there's something about these days caused me to be sort of reminiscing of days gone by. And when between the age of sort of three to six, I was at the local Anglican church, what was called a little helper. I don't know if anybody else was a little helper. Uh, but I think the theme verse for little helpers was Jesus bids us shine with a pure, clear light, like a little candle burning in the night. In the world is darkness, so we must shine. You in your small corner, and I in mine. And I thought, that's a Zoom uh, kind of prayer and a Zoom kind of song. And actually, the, the chill, being children of the light is very much related to the passage, particularly the last few verses of the passage we're looking at. Now, we're taking a break from the epistle of Hebrews, though it was part of it was read as our epistle uh, today, but you have been making your way uh, through this wonderful and important epistle. And last week, I believe, was Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, which was the final three verses of that whole section, which is primarily Hebrews 11, in which the writer of Hebrews is charging us to be those who endure in faith, and uh, so finally, he comes to the point where he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here it is, looking to Jesus. That's what we want to do today, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So we pivot very logically. Today is Lent 5, or Passion Sunday, and in the next few weeks, we're going to be thinking about Jesus locking on, setting his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And now he is in Jerusalem in the passage we're looking at. And he has only one thing in mind, which is the cross. And so that, that's what we're thinking about here today. We're looking, and if you would like to uh, look in your Bibles to John 12, 30, uh, 20 to 36, 
Uh, I don't very often give titles to my sermons, but this sermon, if there was one word which I would uh, title it, it would be glorified. And the text is from John 12, 27 and 28. This Jesus is saying, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. This, this passage uh, and what I've just read of, of the father speaking in audible terms is the third, only the third and only time in the gospels which recounts the father speaking in audible terms of the son. The first being the baptism of Jesus. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The transfiguration of Jesus, basically the same message except it says, listen to him. And then this passage, which we're looking at today. Now there are four points and I hope they'll be come clear, but just let me uh, tell you them before. All of these things come as a result of a question or sort of an interview which began uh, where the Greeks, that is Gentiles, who were believers who were in Jerusalem because of the feast, uh, said an interesting thing. They, they came to Andrew, or to, sorry, to Philip, to Philip and said, sir, we would see Jesus. Now this, again, talking about uh, looking back, uh, when I was first ordained, I was in a church in Burlington, Ontario, and engraved in the wood of the, of the pulpit were these words which said, sir, we would see Jesus. And no matter how uh, sort of I dragged my way to the, in fear and trepidation, which I continue to do, and today I beg the Lord for mercy as I did each time I was there in that pulpit, but I loved it, sir, we would see Jesus, because I knew that was the only thing that people needed. And so, so it is that uh, as a result of that, there are four points. So, uh, verses 20 to 23, point number one, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's point number one. The, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Point no, number two, by him going down to death. That's verses 24 to 26. Three, thirdly, by him being lifted up, verses 27 to 33. And fourthly, so receive the glory and choose to be children of the light, which is 34 to 36. Now, this passage is all about contrast, light, darkness, down, up. And again, while we're in this sort of nostalgia thing, uh, when I was a, a, a young believer at the University of Guelph and involved in, in uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, in fact, I was around that time one summer, I met Robin Guinness, who was leading a, a beach evangelism at Grand Bend, and I would hitch up there for weekends, and that was a pretty extraordinary time. But while uh, during that time, occasionally guys like me from Guelph, Ontario would make our way into Toronto to what was called the catacombs, the Jesus people. This was an extraordinary time of God working. And on this particular night, I think it was Thursday nights, uh, Corey Ten Boom, the great Corey Ten Boom was to speak. 
Now, if you may or may not have heard of her, her famous book, The Hiding Place, she and her sister and father in Holland harbored Jews for protection and eventually were caught. They were sent to concentration camp, which cost her both her father and her sister's life. She was just near the end of the war, released by a clerical error, uh, and then she had this amazing ministry. And so now she's in her late 80s, and she's in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, speaking to the catacombs, and there I was in the balcony. And I saw this quite frail-looking woman, uh, and there was a person who was assisting, who was literally hovering there to be with her, and she... And there was a, just a microphone there in the middle of the kind of stage. Uh, and so she hobbled, this is my terms, uh, uh, mid eighties now seems quite young to me, but at that time I thought it was pretty old. Uh, and so she, and, and as she was making her way to the microphone, I was thinking, I hope she's gonna make it. And I hope she's not gonna fall over. Well, Corrie Boom, uh, started and of course the atmosphere was electric we were all there uh, literally on the edges of our seats wanting to hear from this great woman of God and she spoke in very thick Dutch accent but very clearly and very precisely and you could understand every word and she said when, to start when you're in concentration camp Satan tries to drive you down but then Jesus comes and he sends you right up. And she, what we didn't know was she had a hard rubber ball in her hand. One of those, they call, we, we call them super balls. And she said, just like this. And she went, wham. And there was this ball went boing and the very tall church. And we all watched as this ball went up and down. It was extraordinary. And we didn't know she had it in her. And we were happy that it didn't hit her when it came down. But this is the kind of this is the kind of picture which I think Jesus, uh, he's not doing this kind of thing. But it is to say that he's talking about going down, and then being lifted up, and that's what we're thinking of. It's time of contrast. Point number one: the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, just for for the background of this. This is, we've already said, is, is a time in which the, uh, uh, they're in Jerusalem, and there are three dramatic displays which Jesus has obviously encouraged and, in a sense, set up, which are all taking him towards the cross. The first one is the raising of Lazarus. But what's interesting is, is that this statement, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified, came as a result of, of a statement which the Greeks added, which means now the whole world is involved. The whole world, not just the Jews, the whole world is poised and looking forward to this event that Jesus was about to do. And so it's, it's as if he waited for that question in order to make sure that he could now say, okay, now that we know it's for the whole world, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In the raising, the first one is the raising of Lazarus. And if you wanted to go back to a few pages in the gospel, John uh, 11, 3 and 4, 
Uh, it's the word came. Jesus is not really hiding, but they had the religious leaders at the end of uh, John 10 had actually taken up stones to, to kill him because he made himself equal to God, which he incidentally did not deny. But anyway, now gone to where it says John the Baptist uh, had early done baptisms and he's there. And it says, verse 3 and 4 of John 11, uh, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Well, if you follow this lengthy passage, you'll discover to the shock and dismay, particularly of the sisters, rather than Jesus picking up everything and rushing to Bethany where Lazarus was in his illness, grave illness, he stayed put. And in fact, it becomes clear that he did that on purpose. By verse 14 and 15, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has now died. And for your sake, he said, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. When he got there, not surprisingly, first Martha and then Mary, the two sisters, approached and both had the same point in great disappointment. Lord, Rabbi, if you'd come earlier, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Jesus said, Lazarus will rise again. And Martha said, well, yeah, I know that. And, you know, I know on the last day, etc." And Jesus said an extraordinary thing, verse 25 and 26. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And what became clear is that he was about soon to raise this now man who's now been four days in the grave to life as a demonstration of the purpose of the cross that he was about to accomplish. And so it is that by verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. This is the tomb of Lazarus. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Got it? Glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen straps, strips, and his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. Well, as you can imagine, and I'm sure you may well know this event, it caused quite a stir, not just for, Larry, for Lazarus and for Mary and for Martha, but for the whole area. And in fact, the religious leaders who were already conspiring to find a way to get rid of Jesus, now they have the problem that he's just raised a dead man to life, and everybody knows it. And in the midst of uh, their scheming, they have an emergency meeting, it says in John 11, and uh, 49 to 53. Uh, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. <laughs> I'm familiar with these kind of discussions. 
discussions, nor do you understand that it's better for you that no, one man should die for the people, that not the whole nation should perish. I'm not familiar with those kind of discussions, but this sort of, he's saying, you guys, you don't get it. One man has to die, which will save the whole nation. It says, uh, he said, it says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad, the whole world. So that's when we're thinking about the Greeks and so on that we later can hear about. And later, the religious leaders are not only thinking about now getting rid of Jesus, one die for the nation. They're also conspired John 12, uh, 9 to 11 to actually killing Lazarus because he's exhibit A of who this guy Jesus is. It's pretty extraordinary stuff. So the raising of Lazarus set the scene for the hours now come. More than that, six days before the Passover, there is the um, Mary anointing Jesus' feet at a feast in their home. She takes enough perfume, uh, which is so valuable that it apparently would have cost a full year's wage. That's a lot of, of precious perfume. Dumped it on Jesus' feet and then used her own hair to mop him up. And this, and this fragrance flowing throughout the, the room. And of course, Judas Iscariot, not because he was concerned for the poor, it says, but because he was a thief, said, this should have been given to the poor, not wasted in this way. And Jesus defended her and said that, in fact, this was, uh, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And then the triumphal entry, Jesus riding into Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even King of Israel. And if you look back to Zechariah 9 or Psalm 118, you'll discover that these, they're prophetically fulfilling all that was said in the scriptures to lay the groundwork for the cross of Jesus. The hour has now come. Secondly, for the Son of Man to go to death, he says these words, which truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, this is verse 24, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is a very interesting thing. In fact, there is two surprises in this one section. On the one hand, the, the one who is king, riding into Jerusalem gently, but nevertheless king of kings and lord of lords, is acknowledging the fact that uh, he has to die. And he uses the image of, 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 a, of a, a seed of wheat. I worked, while we're going on nostalgia here, I worked for four summers as a university student at the crop science department at the University of Guelph. I was on the barley crew, not on the wheat crew. There was a wheat crew. But on the wheat crew, there was a 
a guy who had come from what was then Czechoslovakia and smuggled out uh, one head of wheat. So there'd be about maybe 10 or 15 uh, seeds. Now, if he had just kept those as a kind of a trophy of nostalgia, it would have been kind of fun to have. I got this in Czechoslovakia when I worked there. But instead of that, he actually put those seeds in the ground. And that's the point. Jesus is saying, unless the seed dies, and he's talking about a burial, burial into the ground, it dies alone. But if it goes buried, it produces great fruit. And that's what happened to, to my friend in the wheat crew. It became the basis of a great line of wheat, which probably is still being prominent in Ontario to this day. And so it is that... <clears throat> Jesus had to die for there to be a great harvest of people, for the joy set before him. But then again, you have to die. I have to die, my friend, as well. He said that uh, if whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me <coughs> for where I am. There your, your, will your servant be also. It's, it's dying in the sense of, of, of saying no to, first of all, who do you value the most? Your own will, your own self, or knowing who you were made for in the Lord Jesus. David said, because your loving kindness is better than life, I will praise thee. This is what we're talking about. You need to die to the point of thinking you're the most important thing. He is, and knowing him is what you're made for. You've got to die. You've got to die on the sense of, of, of uh, who do you trust for your salvation? Is it you by your scrambling and you're doing the best you can? Or is it the Lord Jesus and his death and resurrection? Reminds me of Moses and the people of Israel with their back to the Red Sea. And Moses said, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Do nothing. Just stay there and watch. Well, actually, later he said, go forward right into the Red Sea. But it was that they, were, they had to die in the sense of allowing it to be all God that did it. David talks about, he picked me out of the miry clay, out of quicksand. The dying is that sense of in quicksand, every move you make takes you deeper. But so you have to let him put his great arms around you and pick you up out and put your feet on a rock. So we do not lose heart, Paul says, though our outward self is wasting away, our inward self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You've got to die so that you can know life, eternal life. There's a famous guy, he's, he was more famous when I was a young man. His name was Jim Elliott, 
who died along with four others in a pursuit of evangelizing a particular tribe of Alka. And in his journal, his wife later discovered, and it became a very famous quote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what Jesus is talking about. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified by him going down to death and you dying as well that you might know life. Thirdly, by being lifted up. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus said. This is a extreme source of great turmoil and agony as he thought spiritually of what was heading for him on the cross. To be separated, he who eternally was with the Father, to be suddenly experiencing this measure of separation and judgment and hell for us. Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. There's a play on words here of the lifting up. Of course, in the cross, Jesus was lifted up and attached through the spikes on it in his hands and through his feet. Uh, and in this just extraordinary, horrific form of torture execution. What a throne. What an enthronement. And yet there is this aspect of that him ruling and being glorified from that place of humiliation and death, where he said, as we thought last year about it is finished. It's interesting that in fact, Jesus had in John three, in a conversation with Nicodemus, referred to Numbers 21. And he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There was this extraordinary thing that is a means of reversing the poison that was killing people by being uh, bitten by poisonous snakes. Moses was instructed to put a bronze serpent on a pole, hold it up, and everybody who looked to the bronze serpent would be healed. Jesus had to be lifted up. And from that place of glory and honor to be the focus through which all people will be drawn to him. The kind of death. So receive the glory and choose to be children of the light. This last section is interesting. There, all that is going on, and the people are arguing about whether that was thunder or what that was. And then they, they said, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest 
the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know what he, where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Dear friends, in the midst of this extraordinary picture of, of the hour has now come for the sun to go down into the earth and then be lifted up on the cross and lifted up through the resurrection and lifted up by the ascension and one day to return. He's been lifted up before us. Don't neglect that. Don't neglect that light, that glory which has been given. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, at the end of chapter 5, he said, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. And then he goes on and says, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Receive the glory of this one who has gone down and been lifted up. And walk in the light and be therefore children of the light in this otherwise dark world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the Church of Christ the King. I thank you for the access we have to one another, even in this means. We thank you for your word, which is powerful. And we pray that you would, in having lifted up, Jesus before us, the one who went down into the ground on our behalf, that we might uh, consider his life more, more valuable than anything we have, because to know you is better than life itself, and thus to receive that life, and therefore to live as children of the light. Bless all who have heard this now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us now take a moment to reflect on the message which we have just heard.